Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 74 of the show. It's another good one for you. Uh, PGA Tour had a new event last weekend that we'll recap and uh, a change of scenery in this weekend's event has moved to a different venue this year. So we'll take a look at that. Uh, the NBA playoffs are all officially in the second round, so we'll get you caught up there. In the National Hockey League, the playoffs have officially started, uh, so we'll preview the first-round matchups, give you some predictions there. And then uh, over in the NFL, we had the NFL draft wrap up this past weekend. So, uh, of course, Major League Baseball is still going, so we'll get you caught up on the standings update there. Plenty to discuss, and we'll jump right into it here in the PGA Tour. Uh, this past weekend's tournament was the Mexico Open or the Mexico Open at Vedanta, as it was formally called. And that was at the Vedanta Vierta Golf Club, which is in Villa Hidalgo, Mexico. It's on the Puerto Vierta side of Mexico. Par 71 distance was 7,456 yards. Now, this was the very first version of the Mexico Open. And uh, since the course's original design, they have added over 250 yards to the course uh, with the intent of hosting a PGA Tour event, which they finally were able to do this year. So uh, the course, a little larger fairways than normal. Um, greens were all protected by uh, bunkers, a lot of bunkers, 106 total bunkers uh, on this course, which obviously is a lot. Got to see a lot of sand shots. The layout of the course is very similar to the Copperhead course at Innisbrook, where you have uh, five par threes, uh, four of which were played over water, and then you have four par fives, which is about normal, I guess. Uh, the weather was just immaculate. Uh, of course, it's on Mexico's west coast, so uh, warm, dry, certainly had some breeze coming in off the ocean, but man, the course, really, if you watch this tournament, now, I didn't watch this as much as I have previous tournaments for multiple reasons, the main one being the NFL draft, but I did see a lot of it most most uh, on Sunday. I watched a lot of Sunday's final round, but the course itself was spectacular. Palm trees everywhere, very green fairways, uh, just super white sand. Uh, very, very nice course. Um, looked fun to play. The field itself for this thing really was not great. Certainly a below average field. Uh, you had some, some notable names. John Rahm was the best golfer uh, in the world rankings that was in the field. Uh, Gary Woodland, Patrick Reed, Tony Finau, Daniel Berger, and uh, several Mexican golfers uh, took part in this thing as well, including Abraham Anser. So uh, the tournament itself, um, you know, the leaderboard was not very sexy at all. Um, not a whole lot of big names anywhere near the top of this thing. There were a couple 
but uh, the golf was good. It was competitive, all right? It just wasn't, uh, wasn't appealing to the eye in terms of the names that were on the leaderboard, but the scores were very close. Um, in the end, your winner was John Rahm. Uh, he won with a score of 17 under par. Uh, which was good enough for his seventh career victory on the PGA Tour. Now, Rom opened this thing out of the gate with a blazing 7-under 64, and he actually got progressively worse with each round. Not, not that it was bad enough. He still won the thing, but he shot a 64 round one, 5-under 66 in round two, a 3-under 68 in round three, and a 2-under 69 in round four. Now, oddly enough, John Rahm's uh, 2-under 69 in the final round on Sunday was the highest score of any of the players that ended up inside that top six. So, uh, pretty interesting note there. Uh, There were three golfers that tied for second at 16-under par, which was one shot back of Rahm. That was Brandon Wu, Tony Finau, and Kurt Kitayama. Now, Brandon Wu and Tony Finau... Uh, both played amazing on Sunday. They each shot an 8-under 63, all right, to really catapult themselves up. Uh, they just ran out of holes. They were several groups behind John Rahm, and um, they just ran out of holes. And uh, the way that they had played on Sunday, I certainly think either of them had a legitimate chance to beat John Rahm if it were to make it to a playoff hole. But we didn't need to worry about that because Rom, uh, that two under was good enough. What he got a little hairy there on eighteen for Rom. He uh, had an errant tee shot and put it back in the fairway. Luckily for him, it was a par five, so uh, he was able to salvage par on that to keep him his one shot victory. Uh, so those were your three at sixteen under. There was uh, one golfer at fifteen under, which was Davis Riley. He played good, consistent golf all weekend. His lowest round was on Friday with a 6-under 65. And then you had four golfers tied for six at 14-under par. Aaron Wise, David Lipsky, Alex Smalley, and Cameron Champ. Now, uh, Aaron Wise and David Lipsky, they both shot 7-under 64s on Sunday. So they were just one shot behind Wu and Finau in terms of the best round on Sunday, but uh, they made it interesting, you know, at least got themselves up there near the top of the leaderboard. But as you can see, there isn't a whole, outside of Tony uh, Finau and John Rahm, uh, you know, there really isn't a whole lot of big-name golfers up there in that that top portion of the leaderboard, and that's, uh, you know, about nine or ten golfers I just named. So uh, the names weren't very appealing, for the most part, but it was still very good golf. Uh, turned into a good tournament, uh, pretty competitive. Did come down to the last hole because if Rom would have bogeyed 18, that would have sent him into a three-way playoff with Wu and Finau since they were in the clubhouse with 16 under. So Rom salvaged that par on 18 to win, and um, you know, just Rom is you know he's was world number one for a while, dropped down to world number three. I think this win may potentially bump him up to number two. We'll see. But either way, he's certainly one of the best golfers in the world, so it's not surprising to see the best golfer in this field. He certainly was that. So uh, not surprising to see him come out on top. But that brings us to this weekend's tournament, which is the Wells Fargo Championship. Now, 
Normally, this is uh, at the Quail Hollow Country Club in North Carolina. But this year, the Wells Fargo Championship is at TPC Potomac at Avenel Farm, which is in Potomac, Maryland. It's about 10 miles northwest of Washington, D.C. It's going to play at a par 70. All right, distance will be 7,160 yards. So the par 70 makes it a little more challenging. We might not see as low of scores that we've been seeing with a par 71 or a par 72 course. Um, Now, I mentioned Quail Hollow. The reason for the change of venue this year uh, is because Quail Hollow is actually the host site of this year's President's Cup, which takes place in the fall. So uh, they're they're taking a one-year hiatus from Quail Hollow for this tournament to get the course ready for the President's Cup. Of course, you got that's that's a main event there. Got to get that course in good shape, especially being there on the East Coast. So um, now TPC Potomac, this course this weekend, has previously hosted 21 PGA Tour events, with the most recent being back in 2018. So the course itself is built on the... Um, the Rock Run Stream Valley, which is a main tributary to the Potomac River. So you got a lot of creeks, a lot of streams that run throughout the course. Uh, The bunkers for this thing are more Scottish style. We don't have as many as we did last week in Mexico. But the Scottish style bunkers, uh, as you know, with like Lynx Golf are very deep. So uh, we'll, we'll see some more challenging sand shots than we would normally. Um, wind might be a slight issue, uh, you know, being on, on the river. So um, the greens are, are a little smaller than what we would see. I guess an average green, uh, these are a little smaller. So uh, it, might, uh, it might make that difficult for low scoring conditions, uh, especially that with the fact that it's a par 70 as well. So the field itself for this thing is, I would say it's above average, uh, certainly better than last week. Uh, it's headlined by Rory McIlroy, who's the defending champion here at this tournament. He he won the Wells Fargo last year at Quail Hollow, but uh, he's hasn't finished any worse than 10th in his last 10 starts. And some other notable big names that are going to be playing this week. You got Gary Woodland, Webb Simpson, Patrick Reed, Sergio Garcia, Jason Day, Abraham Anser, Tyrell Hatton, Max Homa, Tony Finau's back in action, Mark Leishman, Matthew Fitzpatrick, Corey Connors, you know, Paul Casey's coming back. So, you know, you can see there's a lot lot more um, higher profile names to choose from this week, um, you know, for your viewing pleasure. And uh, I think it'll be a good tournament. It's uh, it's always good to kind of change scenery every once in a while. And, you know, this course has hosted plenty of PGA Tour events. So uh, I certainly don't think it's, uh, uh, you know, going to be too big of an issue for these guys. Um, and if anything, like I said, the par 70 just might make it play a little bit more challenging. So uh, all in all, I'll definitely uh, take a peek this weekend at the Wells Fargo. I uh, got enough big names up there to make it worthwhile. should see another competitive leaderboard uh, this week. Um, but either way, we'll, uh, we'll check back in with how that went on next week's episode. But we'll move over to the National Hockey League and uh, look at the first-round playoff matchups. Of course, last week's episode, we only had one or two games left in the regular season for most teams, so we knew uh, several of the first-round matchups, but we did not know the final uh, standings as far as the seeding goes. But um, I will preface this by saying these predictions that I'm giving you for each series uh, I have already made. I I completed a a bracket 
on the NHL.com bracket challenge. So my predictions are already locked in, even though we've already played at least one or two games in each of these series. So we'll take a look at this. The first series, we'll start off in the Eastern Conference. The President Trophy winning Florida Panthers, top overall seat in the Eastern Conference, are playing the second wildcard team, the Washington Capitals. All right. Uh, I predicted that Florida would win the series in six games. They've played one game already, and the Washington Capitals actually won that game 4-2. to two. The Florida Panthers took a 2-1 to one lead into the third period, but Washington scored three third-period goals to uh, defeat the Panthers in game one. So Washington currently leads that series one game to nothing. Um, I like Florida. Obviously, they won the President's Trophy. Uh, you know, Jonathan Huberdeau uh, finished with 115 points this year, second in the NHL. Uh, just that team has been uh, scored the most goals in the league this year. I mean, just, you know, they acquired Claude Giroux at the trade deadline. Uh, just simply the best team on paper in the Eastern Conference, or one of them at least. They certainly played like it all year uh, en route to their President's Trophy. So uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, how Florida responds in Game 2 uh, after blowing a third-period lead. Second series in the Eastern Conference would be uh, the number two seed in the Atlantic Division, uh, Toronto Maple Leafs against the number three seed, Tampa Bay Lightning. I picked the Tampa Bay Lightning to win this series in seven games, um, just simply because of their lineup. Uh, they have one of the best forwards in the league, two of the best forwards in the league, and Nikita Kucherov and Steven Stamkos. And hell, you can even throw Braden Point. Uh, their lineup is just ridiculously loaded. On defense, they have Victor Hedman, who's certainly a top three defenseman in the NHL. And then the, the Lightning also have the best goalie in the league in Andre Vasilevsky. They're the two-time defending Stanley Cup champions. Uh, I just do not see them losing to Toronto. Uh, so I picked Tampa in seven. This series has played two games thus far. And Toronto came out flying in the first game. They won five to nothing. Uh, complete surprise there. And then Tampa Bay returned the favor with a five spot in game two. And Tampa won game two, five to three. It was five to one at one point. And Toronto got two goals in the third to uh, bring it a little closer. But that series is tied up at one game apiece. Uh, both teams are, are ridiculously loaded. Uh, the Leafs, too, with, you know, Austin Matthews scored 60 goals this year to, to lead the league. And Mitch Marner, uh, John Tavares. That team is is loaded, and the Leafs kind of get a lot of flack for flopping in the playoffs, but if there was a year that they could certainly make some noise, I do believe that this year would be the year. However, they've got a tough first-round draw there in Tampa Bay, so uh, that series I certainly see going seven games, so give me the lightning in that series. Uh, on the bottom half of the Eastern Conference bracket, the top seed in the Metropolitan Division was the Carolina Hurricanes. They played... Or they drew the wild card number one team in the Boston Bruins. Uh, I picked Carolina to win this series in six games. Uh, they've been really good all year, very consistent, uh, have been at the top of that division for much of the year. They won the Metropolitan Division, and I like them to win in six games. This series has played two games already, and it has been all Carolina. Um, Carolina won the first game 5-1, to one, won the second game 5-2. to two. So the series heads back to Boston uh, with Boston trailing two games to none. And um, I'd like for Boston to maybe win one of these games in Boston, but um, 
you know, I said six games for Carolina. I don't know if we're going to make it to six. Uh, Carolina's just been pretty dominant, and so I would look for that to continue. And then the last series in the Eastern Conference is the number two seed New York Rangers from the Metropolitan Division against the number three seed Pittsburgh Penguins from the Metropolitan Division. All right, so 2v3 there. Um, I picked the New York Rangers to win this series in six games. This series has played one game, and it was by far the best game of the playoffs thus far. It was a triple overtime thriller uh, in that game in New York at Madison Square Garden. The Pittsburgh Penguins came out victorious 4-3. to three. Uh, Evgeny Malkin tipped home a slap shot, deflected it for the uh, triple overtime game-winning goal. And, um, you know, Pittsburgh, they don't have Tristan Jari, their starting goalie, so they rolled with Casey DeSmith. He got hurt late in that game. I think it was in the first or second overtime he got hurt. So they put Louis Domingue, who's their third-string goalie, in, and he was able to uh, stop enough pucks to get the victory. I don't see that holding up against the Rangers. Uh, Chris Kreider scored 50-something goals this year, and then Igor Shesterkin, the goalie for the Rangers, uh, he made 79 saves in that game, uh, and they still lost. So uh, Shesterkin very uh, likely will win the Vesna Trophy this year, or certainly is going to be in the mix to win the Vesna. Um, I just, you know, I hate picking against Crosby, Malkin, Latang, that whole crew that's been together for a long time. Um, you know, I think I would have learned my lesson by now by picking against Pittsburgh in the playoffs, as they continue to just prove me wrong. But I think the Rangers. Um, the way that they've played this year and the goaltending advantage that they have because Shesterkin is way better than DeSmith or Louis Domingue. So uh, give me the Rangers. Like I said, six games, they're down one nothing. So we'll see how that turns out. Over in the Western Conference, the top overall seed in the Western Conference came from the Central Division. It was the Colorado Avalanche. They drew the second wildcard team, the Nashville Predators, also from the Central Division. Central Division had five teams in this playoffs out of the eight, so very impressive stuff there in the Central. I picked the Colorado Avalanche to win this series in six games. They currently have played one game, and that was all Colorado. Colorado won the first game 7-2. to two. It was 5 to nothing in the first period, uh, very early. Nashville does not have UC Soros. Um, they have uh, David Riddick as their goalie. And uh, that just proved to be, you know, quite the easy matchup for the Avalanche. Um, you know, Kale McCarr had, I think, three or four points in that game. Just uh, great performance by Colorado. Uh, I there I don't see Nashville taking this series anything past six games. I would be shocked. Uh, it might not even make it to six. We'll see how Nashville responds. But Colorado is certainly a force to be reckoned with. Um, the second series in the top half of the Western Conference bracket is the Central Division number two seed Minnesota Wild against the number three seed St. Louis Blues. This is probably the best series on paper. Uh, both teams finished with over 100 points. I think the Blues came in at 108, and the Wild were at, I think, maybe 113 points in the regular season. Uh, of course, the Wild, um, they traded for Marc-Andre Fleury at the trade deadline. Uh, I picked the Minnesota Wild to win this series in seven games. I think this series goes the distance, and I just simply like Minnesota, maybe for the home ice advantage part. But, uh, yeah, I you know, Kirill Kaprasov, um, he, is, he is playing on another level. He had over 100 points this year. Uh, the Blues are going to be a tough out, though. Uh, this series has actually played two games thus far. 
St. Louis won the first game four to nothing. Very surprising effort there by St. Louis, even though Minnesota outshot them in that game. And then uh, the second game was all Minnesota. Minnesota won that one six to two. So that series is tied at one game apiece. Uh, in that game two, uh, Kirill Kaprizov scored a hat trick, which was the very first hat trick in Minnesota Wild playoff history for their franchise. So um, I like this series heads back to St. Louis tied at a game apiece. I just like Minnesota to come out on top in that series. So I'll take the Wild there. And then the bottom half of the Western Conference bracket, the Pacific Division winner, Calgary Flame. Uh, Calgary Flames, they drew the first wildcard team, my Dallas Stars. The Stars limped into the playoffs uh, with a minus 10 goal differential, which was by far the worst out of any of the playoff teams. They were the only playoff team to finish with a negative goal differential. Um, I'm not even going to try and be a homer here. Uh, I picked the Calgary Flames to win this series in six games. And after watching the first game, I don't know if it's going to make it six games. Uh, Calgary came out. They won one to nothing. Close game. The score doesn't really indicate how close or how big of a mismatch it was at first. The Stars only had three shots in the first period. Um, The game started at 9 p.m. Central time, uh, which is, I think, Dallas thought the game started at 9 p.m. Pacific time because they didn't start playing until uh, about the third period is really when the Stars kind of turned it on and had some chances. But uh, the Flames ended up scoring a power play goal about five minutes into the the first period. Elias Lindholm, a trade deadline acquisition, uh, came out on top there, you know, with the, with the goal there. It was 10 seconds into the power play. A very quick goal. Uh, Matthew Kachuk and Johnny Goudreau both had uh, over 100 points. Uh, Kachuk had, I think, 104. Goudreau had 115, which was tied for second in the NHL this season. Uh, that team is uh, loaded. They're very fast. They're very physical. And um, Jacob Markstrom, the goalie for the Calgary Flames, he led the NHL in shutouts in the regular season with nine and, of course, got another one in game one here. So that's going to be tough for the Stars. Stars are very anemic on offense, have have a very difficult time scoring goals. So that is going to be problematic against a, a very tough physical Calgary team. And uh, give me the – I picked the Calgary Flames to win this series in six games. But like I said, I don't, I don't know if the Stars have enough juice to uh, – make it to six games but Calgary leads that series one game to nothing and then the bottom half last series in the first round the Western Conference the Pacific Division number two seed Edmonton Oilers against the number three seed Los Angeles Kings I picked the Edmonton Oilers to win this series in six games Uh, they have Connor McDavid best player in the league led the league in points he's your Art, Art Ross trophy winner with 123 points Leon Dreisaitl had 40 something goals himself um you know, and Mike Smith came into the playoffs essentially on a nine-game winning streak, uh, which was broken in game one. All right, game one, the Kings actually took that one four to three. That was a tight game back and forth. Kings came out late there, uh, and then Edmonton responded in game two with a six to nothing victory. So Mike Smith got the shutout in game two to uh, help the Oilers even the series at one game apiece. Um, Edmonton obviously has home ice in this series. Uh, and I simply think they have too much firepower for the Kings, who, of course, are without Drew Doughty on defense. So uh, Kings are a very young team, uh, going to be very, very good in the next couple of years uh, with all the, the young players that they have. But I think the Oilers are, are better right now, and uh, they have two of the top 
we'll say, five or six players in the league with McDavid and Dreisaitl. So uh, give me the Oilers to come out on top there in six games. But like I said, the series, uh, they've all started. Um, I got my predictions in before they started, kind of just recap those, and uh, we'll keep you up to date, and we'll check back in next week to see uh, how we're looking in all of these series. But we'll move on to the National Basketball Association, do a playoff update here in the NBA. The second round series in both conference have officially uh, began, and we're a couple games into those series. We'll start off uh, in the Eastern Conference. The top overall seed there is the Miami Heat. They drew the number four seed Philadelphia 76ers in the second round, and the Philadelphia 76ers... um, Came into this series uh, fresh off of a six-game win over uh, the Toronto Raptors. Uh, In game six of that series, uh, all-star center Joel Embiid sustained a fractured right orbital bone and a mild concussion. So he is not, did not play in either of the first two games of this series, and his absence was clearly felt. Uh, Miami won both of the first two games of this series, uh, 106 to 92 and 119 to 103. Uh, neither game particularly close. Uh, Miami center Bam Adebayo leading the way through two games, averaging 23.5 points, 10.5 rebounds per game. First series, it was the Jimmy Butler show. And so far in this series, it's been the Bam Adebayo show. On the Philadelphia side of things, Tobias Harris has had to step up uh, his scoring. He's up to 24 points a game in this series. But uh, that's obviously without Joel Embiid, uh, that's going to be very difficult to overcome. The series shifts back now to Philly. We'll see if Embiid is going to play in games three or four, but uh, this team goes as Joel Embiid goes. I know they have James Harden, but uh, he just simply hasn't been uh, as effective as you would have hoped he would in Joel Embiid's absence. So uh, we'll see what the Heat can do, but uh, Miami certainly has a stronghold on this series, up two games to none. Uh, the other Eastern Conference series is a 2-3 matchup. Second seed was the uh, Boston Celtics, third seed Miami, I mean uh, Milwaukee Bucks. So that series, um, <clears throat> the Bucks have been without uh, forward Chris Middleton for both of the games so far this series. He sprained his left MCL. Uh, in his in his left knee, so um, they've been without him. Uh, Giannis obviously is still playing <clears throat> at his All Star level. Twenty six points a game, eleven rebounds, nine and a half assists per game. He's almost averaging a triple double so far in this series. Uh, Milwaukee actually won the first game, one hundred one to eighty nine, and then Boston came back in game two, winning one hundred nine to eighty six. So. Neither of those games were close. Both of them were, were pretty um, pretty lopsided victories. But the series now sits at one game apiece heading to Milwaukee. All right, we're not sure. Chris Middleton is probably slated to return at some point here in the next uh, couple of games. Maybe it's game three. Uh, we'll see on that. But <clears throat> um, this series is great. Um, you got... Jason Tatum on the Boston side is averaging 25 points a game, seven assists. So uh, he's picking up where he left off in the in the first round series. And uh, I certainly 
would not be surprised if this series went seven games uh, back and forth. Of course, Milwaukee's the defending NBA champion, uh, but the way Boston's been playing, um, I certainly think that uh, they have a good chance to win this series. Over in the Western Conference, the top overall seed in the entire playoffs is the Phoenix Suns. They had a first-round victory over the... um, uh, Who did they play in the first round? Uh, I'm trying to think. I don't remember. But they they won in five games, pretty much handled them. Dallas Mavericks is their opponent here in the second round. Uh, Four-seed Dallas Mavericks... Um, looking really good, you know, coming in fresh off their six-game series victory over the Utah Jazz. And, um, you know, the first game was was kind of back and forth. Dallas got down big, came back late, but uh, Phoenix ended up winning that one 121-114. to 114. And then game two, uh, Dallas had a lead at halftime, kind of fell apart in the second half, got into some foul trouble early in this one that uh, caught up with them late. Uh, Phoenix won game two, 129 to 109. So uh, pretty ugly series so far for the Mavericks. Luka Doncic had 45 points in game one, added another 34 points in game two. <clears throat> that dude is, uh, he has six career 40-point playoff games uh, before his 24th birthday, which is the most of all time. Uh, guy's just on another level, top five player in the league, no doubt about it. He's going to have to continue to carry this team uh, the rest of the way as the series shifts back to Dallas. Uh, Chris Paul, Devin Booker uh, in Game 2. Booker had 30. Paul had 28, I believe. So uh, Chris Paul is averaging 23.5 in this series. And it's just, you know, DeAndre Ayton's physical presence in the middle there for Phoenix, his ability to rebound and score. Dallas just does not have an answer for that. Um, they don't. Uh, Dwight Powell's their center. He's certainly not as physically gifted or talented as DeAndre Ayton. So um, Phoenix has out rebounded Dallas through two games by an average of about twelve rebounds per game. Which that's going to need to change if the Mavericks have a chance at winning uh, Game Three in Dallas this weekend. Is certainly a must win for the Mavericks if they want any chance in this series. But uh, if Dallas can get Game Three, then I think this series gets interesting. Uh, but if not, then this thing is done. Um, and Phoenix beat New Orleans, the Pelicans, in the first round. I don't know why I couldn't think of that, but that's how they got there. And the other matchup in the Western Conference, the second round matchup, is a two-three matchup again. Both conferences have a one v four and a two v three, so the top four teams in each conference all advanced to the uh, semifinals here, which is very common in the NBA. Upsets aren't as common as you would see in the National Hockey League playoffs or potentially in the NFL, but uh, the 2-3 matchup in the West, number two Memphis Grizzlies against the number three Golden State Warriors. Uh, This series has been uh, a good one. It's tied at one game apiece. Golden State took the first game 117-116. to Very close game. Memphis almost got out of there with a win in game two. Memphis uh, got 47 points from John Morant to win 106-101. to 101. Now those 47 points from John Morant in Game 2, it was his second 45-point game of the playoffs this year, which 
makes him join only LeBron James and Kobe Bryant as the only three players in NBA playoff history with multiple 45-point playoff games before the age of 23. So uh, Morant, he's averaging 40 points a game in the series. Uh, Just, you know, uh, unbelievable talent there uh, by John Morant. I mean, he's he's worth the price of admission. Uh, Golden State side, Jordan Poole picking up where he left off there in round one. He's averaging 25 and a half. Then, of course, you have Clay Thompson, Steph Curry. Uh, you know, that lineup just I, – I, I think Golden State is going to win. They're, they're technically the lower seed, but I do believe that Golden State is going to win. But the series – uh, those two games were in Memphis. The series goes back over to Oakland uh, for games three and four. <clears throat> so uh, Golden State usually plays pretty well at home. So um, if, if Golden State can, can win both of their home games, this thing is going to be uh, you know, pretty much over. But uh, it's, this is entertaining. You know, all, all the series, you know, uh, the top seeds are up. Uh, two games to none, and then the two three matchups are both one game apiece. So uh, certainly some inter- entertaining and exciting NBA playoffs. And uh, by next week, uh, it's possible that uh, one or two of these series might be over. But uh, either way, we'll definitely uh, check back in next week to see how these series have uh, turned out. But we'll move over to Major League Baseball. Do a standings update here. Uh, most teams have played. About 24 to 25 games or so, give or take. Uh, You know, about a month into the season here. So uh, still a lot of baseball to be played. Don't want to spend too much time on the standings updates. Uh, Not a whole lot of movement since last week. Uh, Although I will say before we start, there are only two teams in the league so far this season that have not lost a series yet. Uh, One in the National League would be the New York Mets. And the one team in the American League that hasn't lost a series is the Toronto Blue Jays. Both of them have won a game in their current series as of this podcast. So that is still the case. Uh, Two teams that have not lost a series, both of which are sitting pretty good in their respective divisions. We'll start off in the National League. In that National League East, those New York Mets are 18-9. and They have a a four-and-a-half game lead in their division, which is the biggest lead currently at the moment uh, in that division, over the Miami Marlins. Now, the Mets, though, they actually uh, threw a combined no-hitter, which was the first no-hitter of this 2022 season. They did that last week against the Philadelphia Phillies. It was only the second career no-hitter in uh, Mets franchise history. Again, it was a combined no-hitter, so that includes all of the pitchers that pitched. They also, the Mets designated second baseman Robinson Cano for assignment. So they're sending Cano down to the minors. Uh, This could quite possibly be the start of the end of Cano's career. Uh, I mentioned last week's episode, I think last week, that uh, Cano is the next closest current player to 3,000 career hits, and he's still over 300-something hits away, about 350 hits away from getting 3,000. So it does not appear that he will ever reach that mark. Uh, the Miami Marlins uh, are 12 and 12. They're, like I said, four and a half games back of the Mets. The Atlanta Braves are 12 and 15. Philadelphia Phillies 11 and 14. Washington Nationals 9 and 17. So they're in last place. The National League Central 
Uh, the Milwaukee Brewers are 17 and 8, two and a half games in front of the St. Louis Cardinals, who are 14 and 10. The Pittsburgh Pirates have been a little bit of a surprise this year. They're 10 and 14, uh, which isn't, you know, great. They're obviously under 500. They're six and a half games back in Milwaukee, but uh, I would have figured they would have been a fixture at the bottom spot. Uh, the Chicago Cubs are 9 and 15. Uh, they've been a big disappointment thus far. Uh, and then the Cincinnati Reds are last in the entire league uh, with a record of 3 and 21. Uh, they've lost eight in a row. Uh, they have a minus 82 run differential currently, which is just absolutely horrendous. Uh, the Reds are just, um, yeah, it's going to be ugly for the Reds. I'd be surprised if they won 60 games this year. But uh, keep an eye on that because they have three wins in their first 24 games. Over in the National League West, the Los Angeles Dodgers are up top there at 16-7. and seven. Uh, They have a one-game lead in that division over the San Diego Padres. Now the Dodgers, uh, pitcher Clayton Kershaw became the Los Angeles Dodgers franchise all-time leader in strikeouts this past week with 2,697. So he's certainly going to get to 3,000 strikeouts before the end of his career. Uh, the question is, uh, where does he go after this year? Does he stay with L.A. or does he come back home to Texas? Who knows? But for right now, uh, Kershaw is the franchise leader in strikeouts for the Dodgers. <clears throat> I mentioned they have a one-game lead on the Padres. Padres are 16-9. and nine. Uh, They've won seven out of their last ten, so they're playing some pretty decent baseball. Uh, the Colorado Rockies are third. Uh, well, Rockies and the San Francisco Giants both have a record of 14-10. and 10. They're two and a half games behind the Dodgers. Uh, the Giants have lost three games in a row. Uh, they were, uh, they've, they've fallen a little bit. I think they were in either second or third uh, on last week's episode. So they've kind of taken a hit this last week. And then the Arizona Diamondbacks, 13-13 and 13, uh, as of now, just four and a half games back of the Dodgers. <clears throat> Over in the American League, the American League East, the New York Yankees, uh, best record in baseball at 18-7. and seven. They had an 11-game winning streak that was snapped the other night by the Toronto Blue Jays, who are the second-place team in that division at 16-10. and 10. So uh, Toronto's two and a half games back of the Yankees, which is pretty impressive to, to be that close to them with that 11-game winning streak by New York. So uh, Yankees have a run differential of plus 49 which is actually second in the Major League Baseball behind the L.A. Dodgers, who are at plus 57. But the Yankees have been playing some damn good baseball. Blue Jays as well. I, I've told you Blue Jays are my pick, one of my, my two favorites in the uh, AL this year. Um, Tampa Bay Rays, they have a record of 15-10, and 10, a half game behind Toronto, three games behind the Yankees. And then uh, Boston, the Red Sox, are 10-15. and 15. They're, They've only won three times in their last 10 games. They're eight games behind the Yankees, so uh, that rivalry might be over before it's um, uh, really even started, you know. Uh, so um, keep an eye on that, see how Boston does, see if they're active at the trade deadline. Uh, Baltimore Orioles are currently last in the American League East with a record of 9-16, and 16, which is second worst in the American League. The... Uh, American League Central, Minnesota Twins are up top there at 15-10. and 10. They have a three-and-a-half game lead over the Chicago White Sox and the Cleveland Guardians, who are both 11-13. and 13. 
the Detroit Tigers are eight and fifteen, as well as the Kansas City Royals. They are both eight and fifteen, which is the worst record in the American League. The American League West. Los Angeles Angels are 16 and 10, currently leading that division by a game and a half over the Houston Astros, who are 14 and 11. Houston Astros this past week, manager Dusty Baker won his 2000th career game as a manager, becoming only the 12th manager to accomplish that feat. So, congrats to Dusty Baker. Uh, the Seattle Mariners, my other favorite team uh, to to win the American League this year, they're 12 and 13. They're three and a half games back of the Angels. Uh, just kind of starting out a little flat. Uh, and then my Texas Rangers are 10 and 14, five games back of the Angels, on a four-game winning streak currently, which is, is pretty nice. Um, you know, they've scored 104 runs this year, the Rangers have, which is uh, sixth in the American League. But they've given up 107 runs, uh, which is uh, third worst in the American League, second worst in the American League. So uh, therein lies the problem. They can't keep the runs off the board. So uh, last in the AL West is the Oakland A's, 10 and 15. So uh, still got a lot of baseball left, and we'll definitely keep you posted and keep you up to date as we move along. But we'll move on to the National Football League and uh, do an overview recap of the NFL draft that wrapped up this past weekend. Uh, of course, uh, last week we recapped the first round on last week's episode, and uh, the NFL draft was held in Las Vegas Beautiful scene, over 150,000 people out there to view that. And uh, it was just a great spectacle all around, well run by the NFL. And uh, as I mentioned, we recapped the first round on last week's episode. We're not going to do a, a you know, pick-by-pick pick recap, but uh, the second and third round were held on Friday, and then the fourth through the seventh rounds were on Saturday this past weekend. And uh, I mentioned last week that there were nine trades in the first round of the NFL draft, which is the most all-time. A lot of movement. Uh, the second round, we did see some more trades kind of quickly right off the bat. And then by the time we got to the third round, the trades had settled down a little bit more to a normal pace. And then in rounds four through seven, we did not see a whole lot of trading going on at all. Now, in that first round, there was only one quarterback selected, and that was Kenny Pickett for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He's the University of Pittsburgh, so he gets to stay home there. And it was the first time since 1997 that we've only had one quarterback uh, drafted in the first round. So it's been a while since that's happened. The other quarterbacks, uh, you know, Malik Willis, Desmond Ritter, Matt Corral, they were the other top quarterbacks. We expected them to go between rounds two and three. However, the second quarterback taken in this draft was at pick 74 in the third round. 54 picks after Kenny Pickett, and that was the Atlanta Falcons. They took Cincinnati quarterback Desmond Ritter, and so he was kind of a surprise to be the second quarterback gone, but he falls into a great system there, gets to learn behind Marcus Mariota for a year since those two are very similar quarterbacks, and I would fully expect Ritter to be Atlanta's quarterback heading into next season. Uh, the second, uh, well, the third quarterback taken uh, was also in the third round. It was um, about 12 picks later, and that was at pick 86. It was the Tennessee Titans. They took Malik Willis, quarterback from Liberty. He was widely projected to be the second, first or second quarterback taken. He ends up being the third quarterback taken uh, in the third round, and uh, just kind of a surprise there, honestly. And, 
you know, he gets to learn behind Ryan Tannehill for a year. Tannehill had some interesting comments about that Malik Willis pick, but um, there was only one other quarterback taken in the third round, and that was about um, eight picks after Malik Willis. It was Matt Corral. He got drafted at 94 overall to the Carolina Panthers. So, um, you know, they have Sam Darnold. Uh, Matt Corral's, uh, you know, maybe a younger, more athletic version of Sam Darnold, not very tall. Um, so we'll see. Interesting where the quarterbacks ended up. Uh, Sam Howell, the other big quarterback name, didn't get drafted until the fifth round by the Washington Commanders. So quarterbacks sliding were a story. Um, another big slide in the draft uh, happened all the way into the third round as well. The Philadelphia Eagles at pick 83, they drafted uh, Georgia linebacker Nicobe Dean. He was widely projected to be a first-round pick. Ends up uh, slipping to the third round. He's only 5'11", so he's a little undersized for a prototypical uh, off-the-ball linebacker. But um, the, the kid plays everywhere. It, it came to surface that uh, he has a pectoral injury that might require surgery. So I think that is the main reason why he slid as far as he did. Certainly shouldn't have gotten out of the uh, that second round at all. But another surprising slip of a player that fell to the third round was offensive tackle Bernhard Ryman out of Central Michigan. And uh, he actually got taken about six picks before Nicobe Dean. So Ryman went at uh, 77th overall to the Indianapolis Colts there in the third round. But he had had a great senior bowl, great NFL combine, made a lot of noise late in the scouting process. And uh, I had seen him projected in that first round, mid to late first round, early second round. So for, for Ryman and uh, Dean to be there in the third round, uh, quite a bit of uh, steals, you know, at that point in the draft there. Um, there were a lot of good players drafted on day three, which is that fourth through seventh round range. Uh, in fact, just kind of a stat, 66% of the active players in the National Football League last year were drafted in the uh, third round or later, or even went undrafted. So you can, that's some, obviously a majority of the league, 66% of the league went drafted uh, in the third round or later or undrafted. All right. So you can still find some good talent there in the third round. And, um, I, you know, the highlights, you know, the draft, obviously there, there were two schools that had, uh, you know, quite a bit of, of players drafted that the first one was the university of Georgia, obviously, right. They had the first overall pick in Trayvon Walker. And then it just continued from there. They had a total of 15 players get drafted, this year, which is the most players drafted from a single school in NFL draft history. So obviously that Georgia defense was historic uh, en route to the national title. Uh, but uh, you really got to see that in full swing whenever the draft got going. Uh, they had five first rounders, a couple more second and third rounders, and um, just some elite players there that got drafted by Georgia. But the University of Cincinnati, they had nine players drafted which is the most ever draft picks in one draft for a non-Power 5 school. So uh, Bearcats obviously made it to the college football playoff. They were the first non-Power 5 football team to do that. And then they follow that up with nine Bearcats getting drafted. Of course, number four overall, Sauce Gardner. Uh, he was the highest drafted Cincinnati Bearcat. So uh, good for the University of Cincinnati and Luke Fickle, that program that he's built. And then uh, Mr. Irrelevant, right? It's the very last pick in the draft. 
was the 262nd overall pick this year. The San Francisco 49ers took Iowa State quarterback Brock Purdy. Um, he Brock Purdy becomes Mr. Irrelevant for this year. Uh, no Mr. Irrelevant in NFL draft history has ever completed and or ever thrown a pass in the NFL. So, of course, Brock Purdy looks to change that. So we'll see if he's able to do that. He is now sitting behind Trey Lance and Jimmy Garoppolo on the 49ers depth chart, which I'm surprised that Garoppolo still is even on the 49ers roster at this point. I figured they would have traded him by now, certainly at the draft, to try and get some picks. But Trey Lance will be the starter, nonetheless, if Jimmy G is traded. So uh, Brock Purdy may end up seeing the field uh, at some point if they can get Jimmy G out of the way. So we'll see on that. But um, I came across this stat uh, the state of Texas led the way with the most players drafted. Uh, there were a total of 32 players from the state of Texas that got drafted this year, which was the most out of any state. Georgia was second with 30 players. California had 22 players drafted. Florida had 21. Ohio had 13. Alabama had 12 and then Louisiana, Maryland, and North Carolina all had 10 players drafted from their state. So those were all of the schools that had 10 or more players drafted. Uh, and when I mention the states, I'm talking about where the player is from, not uh, like where they, were, where they grew up, not where they played in college. But Texas high school football obviously rules, uh, and that shows, you know, Georgia obviously is a strong, strong bet every year. And then course California as well so not surprising to see those states listed on there uh, but I just thought that was very interesting so NFL draft is over uh, rookie mini camps should begin uh, next week so keep an eye out for those and uh, we'll keep you up to date with all the NFL news as we move forward here into the offseason and training camp but we'll move on to our segment called around the island that's where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports Got a pretty decent uh, around the island segment this week. A lot of a lot of news, NFL, MLB, NHL to kind of go through. So we'll start off in the National Football League. Uh, this past week, Arizona Cardinals wide receiver DeAndre Hopkins has received a six-game suspension to start the year for violating the league's PED policy. Now, Hopkins released a statement saying that he did not intentionally take any PEDs and that he was going to try and figure out what he would have taken supplement-wise or medication-wise that would have caused a positive test. But either way, Hopkins is done for six games to start the year. That's a big blow to the Arizona offense, but they did acquire wide receiver Marquise Brown from the Ravens uh, during the draft. So um, they at least have... Uh, a wide receiver to step in and fill that void. But losing D-Hop for six games certainly is not ideal. A um, couple of free agent uh, signings and news. Uh, free agent safety Tyron Matthew, he signed a three-year $33 million deal with the New Orleans Saints, has $18 million guaranteed. Now, of course, the Honey Badger, he played his college football at LSU in Baton Rouge right up the road, so... That's more of a homecoming for him. He's been with the Chiefs the last couple of years. Uh, still one of the better safeties in the league. Certainly a playmaker uh, that will slot into that Saints defense nicely. The Atlanta Falcons, they have re-signed defensive tackle Grady Jarrett to a three-year, $51 million contract extension. 
So that's about $17 million per year. Uh, Grady Jarrett uh, has made a couple of Pro Bowls, so uh, Falcons need any, any help that they can get. So keeping their best players certainly would be a good start. And then um, the Chicago Bears, they actually released backup quarterback Nick Foles. So he's officially a free agent. That clears the way for Justin Fields to take charge this year in that Bears offense. Uh, not that there was any question about that, but uh, it is now officially official. Um, Bears really didn't do much to help Justin Fields in the draft either. Um, they didn't have a first-round pick, and their first two picks in the draft were on the defensive side of the ball. So uh, it's going to be kind of more of the same for that Bears offense, I think, this year. But uh, we'll see if, if Fields can – he's going to start all 17 games, uh, assuming health. So uh, we did have our first two first-round picks from this past weekend's draft officially signed their new pro contracts. The first one was uh, the 13th overall pick, Philadelphia Eagles defensive tackle Jordan Davis, signed his four-year $17 million deal. That's fully guaranteed. He got $9.5 million at signing. And then end of the first round, I think the 22nd overall pick, Green Bay Packers defensive tackle Devontae Wyatt uh, signed four years, $12.86 million deal. That's fully guaranteed. And he got six and a half due at signing. So both of those guys are from the University of Georgia on that defensive line. You can see the difference between the 13th overall pick and the 22nd overall pick. It's a little over $4 million more total contract and $3 million more that they received at signing. So uh, it's quite a difference for about nine pick difference. So uh, those are the first two guys that have officially signed their contracts. Obviously, as we move forward into rookie minicamp here and uh, uh, the training camps, we'll we'll see all the rest of them get signed. Now, uh, the most interesting news out of the NFL this past week is that they officially announced the five matchups for the international games that are going to take place this upcoming season. So there's three games that are going to be happening in London, England, this year, October 2nd, October 9th, and October 30th. All right, the matchup for the October 2nd game in London is the Minnesota Vikings and the New Orleans Saints. The October 9th matchup in London is the New York Giants and the Green Bay Packers. And the October 30th matchup in London is the Denver Broncos, and of course, who else? The Jacksonville Jaguars. They have played more games in London than any other team in the league. There was made jokes made uh, previously that Jackson's uh, Jacksonville's home is is in fact London. They get more fans at those games than they do at the games in Jacksonville. And then we have two games uh, in different locations. November thirteenth, the game is in Munich, Germany. All right, that's going to feature the Seattle Seahawks and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And then a week after that, November twenty first, uh, game will be in Mexico City. It's the San Francisco 49ers and the Arizona Cardinals. All right, so interesting matchups there. Obviously, you've got some premier teams uh, playing, the Buccaneers, the Packers, the Cardinals, the 49ers. You know, uh, obviously want to showcase the better teams, uh, or at least some of them uh, when you travel internationally. Should expect huge crowds for all of those games. But uh, moving over to the National Hockey League. All right, I mentioned uh, some of this stuff earlier, but... Uh, on the final day of the NHL's regular season, all right, where, where all the games were played, last game of the year, 
There were 104 goals scored on that day between all of the games, which is the most goals scored on a single day in NHL history. Uh, Just an insane amount of goals. Uh, Montreal ended up scoring 10, I think, on Florida that day. Uh, Just it's just been a wild, wild NHL season. Lots of goals. Uh, the President Trophy winning Florida Panthers, right? They scored an NHL high 335 goals this season, all right? Since we're talking about a lot of goals being scored. Uh, that is the most goals scored in a season since the 1995-1996 season uh, when the Pittsburgh Penguins did that with 362, which is just insane. But uh, so the Panthers led the league in goals. As first time in uh, almost 20 years that we've had that many. And uh, Edmonton Oilers forward Connor McDavid, he led the league with 123 points, which was a career high. Uh, that gives him his fourth Art Ross trophy as the league's top scorer. And there are only two other players in NHL history to win four Art Ross trophies before their 26th birthday. That's Wayne Gretzky and Gordie Howe. So pretty elite company uh, for Connor McDavid there. There were actually eight players this year who had over 100 points this season, which is the most we've seen in a long time. Uh, some years we don't even have any guys that reach 100 points, so to have eight in one year is just insane. Uh, the talent this year in the NHL is simply off the charts. Uh, I kind of mentioned uh, McDavid led the league. Uh, Jonathan Huberdeau and of the Florida Panthers and Johnny Goudreau of the Calgary Flames both had 115 points, which was second. Um, Calgary actually had two players with over 100 points, with Matthew Kachuk being the other. But uh, some coaching announcements. The Detroit Red Wings, they have officially fired head coach Jeff Blaschel, assistant coach Doug Howda, and goaltending coach Jeff Salako. All right, Detroit obviously is in the middle of a rebuild. Uh, they're much closer to competing now than they have been in previous years. They were very much in the playoff race for the first four months of the year uh, before they uh, just couldn't couldn't get over the hump. But I'm interested to see who the Red Wings uh, fill those spots with. Now, Blaschel did a good job. I mean, he, he got dealt a tough hand, obviously, you know, coaching a team in a rebuild. Uh, but Detroit is headed in the right direction. You know, with Lucas Raymond, Moritz Sider, um, you know, those two, two young players there, that's, that's going to be – Whoever comes in coaches, you know, the Wings has a good a good foundation to build off of. And then the Philadelphia Flyers, they have fired their head coach, Mike Yeo. Uh, Yeo took over for Elaine Vigneault after Vigneault was fired just two months into the season, back in December. And in his tenure as um, in his tenure as the Flyers head coach the second half of the season, Mike Yeo went 17-36-7. So uh, that certainly is not good enough to keep your job. So out the door goes Mike Yo. Uh, over to Major League Baseball. The biggest news that came down uh, came from the Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, pitcher Trevor Bauer. He's been suspended for two years. Right? He got a 324-game suspension, which is the equivalent of two seasons, by Major League Baseball for his role in these alleged sexual assault allegations that he's been facing. Now, he spent the last 81 games of last season on administrative leave, plus an additional 18 games to begin this season before being handed a 324-game suspension. Now, that suspension does not factor in any of the time that he's already served. So he's already got about 100 games that he's missed, 
and he's getting an extra 324. So that is potentially three full seasons that Trevor Bauer is going to miss, which would pretty much end his career, I think, at this point. Um, uh, he's going to appeal the suspension, so we'll see if it gets dropped or reduced. But the point is, is he hasn't, you know, he won the 2020 Cy Young Award with Cleveland in- Indians back then before being, um, you know, signing or getting traded to uh, Los Angeles. So uh, we'll see. If if Bauer has to serve all 324 games, uh, I don't see him pitching in Major League Baseball ever again. And if he does, he certainly will not be as effective as he has been the last several seasons. Um, but I did also, I meant to mention the New York Mets. Okay, I went through the standings update a little while ago. But the New York Mets the other night, they beat the Philadelphia Phillies 8-7. to seven, All right. Now, that's only significant because the Mets were down 7-1 to one heading into the ninth inning. All right. So uh, they got seven runs in the ninth to come back for the win. But prior to that, the Mets were, uh, in the last 25 years, they had a record of O in 330 uh, in games in which they trailed by at least six runs entering the ninth inning, which uh, to me, my first thought is this is the, this was the 331st game in the last 25 years that they've been down by at least six runs entering the ninth inning, which is an asinine amount first. That's, that's the first thing. But the second thing is obviously that they've never done it before. So um, that's pretty impressive there that they were able to come back and get, uh, seven runs in the ninth inning to take over. Um, I just I thought that was interesting. But we'll finish up the Around the Island segment with some college football news. It deals with the transfer portal. Uh, Pittsburgh Panthers wide receiver uh, Jordan Addison, he has officially entered the transfer portal after a monster season last year at Pittsburgh. Uh, he finished last year with 100 catches for 1,593 yards and 17 touchdowns en route to winning the Bolitnikoff Award as the nation's top receiver. All right, and he did that, obviously, with Kenny Pickett as his starting quarterback, who just got drafted 20th overall by the Pittsburgh Steelers in the NFL. So uh, with Kenny Pickett out, you knew his production was certainly going to take a hit, and uh, he was just a sophomore last year, Jordan Addison was, so he'll be a junior this fall. And I think it's a good move. Uh, smart move for Jordan Addison. Uh, he obviously has all kinds of scouts looking at him after winning the season that he just had and winning the Bolitnikoff. So uh, for him to go to another school with a better quarterback will only help improve his draft stock. You obviously want to be in a better offense with a better quarterback. And last year with Kenny Pickett, obviously that proved to be uh, very good for, for his draft stock. I've seen several schools, you know, obviously your top dogs like uh, Alabama, Georgia, uh, USC, I've seen rumored to be one of his destinations. That would make a lot of sense. That offense this year under Lincoln Riley, Caleb Williams, that's going to be one of the best in college football. I've also seen uh, my Texas Longhorns in the mix. We'll see with uh, the new, you know, the NIL stuff now with money getting thrown out left and right. It's really anybody's guess as to where he's going to go. I don't know that he's doing it necessarily for the NIL money. I think he's more doing it for, uh, you know, a draft stock improvement, which, uh, you know, if he gets drafted in the first round next year uh, with another good season, then that's going to make up for any of the NIL money that he may have missed anywhere else. So uh, I think uh, it, keep an eye on where Jordan Addison ends up. My, my guess, obviously, I would like to think that he would end up at, you know, either Alabama or USC. Those seem to be kind of the two 
most sensible places for him. But uh, certainly I'm hoping, as a Texas fan, that he does decide to come down to Austin. But that is going to wrap up the 74th episode of Sports Island. Uh, it's a busy, busy weekend. Obviously, NHL playoffs in the first round uh, underway. NBA playoffs are in the second round. That'll be on this weekend as well. Um, Wells Fargo Championship on the PGA Tour. Uh, you know, we got some weather coming in there, so it'll be an interesting tournament to watch there on the East Coast. And then, um, you know, Major League Baseball, obviously, as well, is, is good for for a full weekend worth of entertainment, if that's what you like as well. So we'll, uh, we'll check back in next week and get you caught up on everything that, uh, that went down over this past week. Thanks for listening to the Sports Island Podcast. Be sure and find it on Facebook, at Sports Island Podcast. I'm Rick Mitchell, and I'll catch you next time right here on the Sports Island Podcast, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts.